Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back, all you change makers out there. As always, Steve Opolinik coming at you with Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Thank you for staying with us on this ride through these last 20 podcasts that we put out. Uh, we've really been enjoying doing them, and we've had some amazing guests on. Today's no different. Today, our guest is Lorenzo Lewis. And man, I can't say enough about Lorenzo. He is an amazing guy. I'll get into that a little bit in a minute. Um, but he was just great to talk to. He's from Little Rock, Arkansas, and we talk a lot about mental health and stigma and the layers that we have to peel back when we're talking about mental health in general, but then specifically about communities, lower income, who don't have a lot of access to mental health resources, or even uh, you know when we're working with people of color and specifically young men of color. So Lorenzo is a social entrepreneur, professional speaker, and founder of the widely acclaimed The Confessed Project. And I know it reads like I'm reading it off a website, but it's true. Like He's just this amazing guy who has a succinct way with words and, and an ability to engage with other people, and that's why he's doing the work he's doing. So The Confessed Project is an initiative that focuses on mental health and wellness for young men of color. And it's really cool because it's community-oriented and does a lot of work with barbershops and how to create these good connections with young men of color, get them the resources, and be a good support for them. Lorenzo is really open about his own life and his past with getting stuck in the school-to-prison pipeline, and he talks a little bit about how he goes from that at a young age to getting a master's degree and creating his own business that's focused on mental health awareness. Now, you may, no- you may notice that the name of this episode is Stigma is Curable. And I got that from reading through some of Lorenzo's website. And it's a small snippet, but it's something I think is really important and something that Lorenzo and I talk a lot about in the episode. I'm so, super excited for you guys to hear it because I really enjoyed having this conversation with Lorenzo. And actually, as of now, I think this came out right after we did the podcast. He's got a book that's coming out. It's called Jumping Over Life's Hurdles and Staying in the Race. So you can check him out on his website. I'll have that in the show notes. So you can just click on it and and go right to his website. But if you're interested in what he's doing, if you want to get behind it, contact him, man. He's really open. I found him on LinkedIn because we had a mutual friend. Shout out to Ruby Maddox. And... Just kind of outreach to him, and he's really open to doing this work, getting that stigma is curable kind of mentality out there, and really doing the work and helping people do the work. So, without further ado, episode 20. I hope you guys love it as much as I loved making it. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. All right, welcome to episode 20. Our guest today is Lorenzo Lewis. Lorenzo, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're probably one of the farthest uh, uh, interviews we've done, even though we're in the same country. Um, I did have <laughs> someone from Thailand come on before, though, too. So so maybe you're Black. second farthest. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. No, it's definitely um, really good to obviously know that the work we do is um, it's, it's broad. It is this, this world is a little smaller sometimes. And connections, so I'm really just great to connect with you and, and 
you know, to have a, such an in-depth but very critical, important conversation. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, and we'll get into to your story in a minute and, and what you're doing and what your model and mission are to make a change, not only in the, in the United States, but globally as well. Um, but I think, you know, any listener that, that has listened to this podcast before, community and connection are one of the biggest things of why we made this podcast. And I think it's great to connect over miles and miles and miles um, to see like-minded individuals and build a community, whether it's digitally or or face-to-face. Yes, yes, for sure. I'm definitely excited. You ready to get this thing rolling? Thank yeah. you for having me again. Yeah, let's jump into it. So, Lorenzo, can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a native of Little Rock, Arkansas, um, deep southern roots. Um, I am a um, first-generation graduate um, and my and my family, as well as um, the last few years, obtained a master's degree in public administration. But broadly, my experience um, comes from the behavioral health sector. I worked a decade in behavioral health. Yeah. Um, my first job was at 21, working at a juvenile detention facility. And roughly years before that, the age of 17, um, frankly to say, I was incarcerated as a juvenile. So roughly three and a half years afterwards, I was able to get a job. Um, in the same setting, not the same facility, but the same type of setting and um, space is why I was recently incarcerated. <clears throat> um, wow. So I always use that as a moment of the change and the uh, overcoming um, to where I am now. And that moment of being incarcerated, I was able to get a, a second chance um, not being charged as a felon and being able to um, just have my rights and, and freedom, obviously, now to, to do the work that I do ultimately. But that was my turning point. Um, and I think long term is, um, you know, yeah, just uh, went through a lot of different deliberating issues around depression and, 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 and different things, um, family and traumatic experiences, which led to me to do the work of the Confess Project, which is a national movement that's geared towards building a culture of mental health for young men of color across the U.S., um, now uh, really focusing on the southern and midwest um, cities in, um, of the U.S., uh, hoping to launch further. So that's pretty much a snapshot about me. That's um, awesome. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for, for being so open and candid. I know uh, sometimes when when we get into our missions and, and what we're doing, and the, uh, we definitely want to talk more about the Confess Project, um, sometimes it's hard to, to open up about that drive, but it sounds like your drive was, was really based personally on, on making a difference on people who from similar background or, or, you know, you dealt with being incarcerated and you dealt with depression. And it seems like that's what, where your fire and your passion come from. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, yeah, no, definitely. I, I think it's the, the biggest pieces uh, realizing that uh, a part of who I am and this, um, this, this the makeup of being a, a black man in America truly embodies the, the the identity of so many other black men across the U.S. But but ultimately, even um, you know the black community and, and ultimately minority communities, right? And, and, and communities right. abroad. Think about it: mental health in a large larger spaces. You know, um, one in five Americans are affected by mental illness. So thinking more particular in communities of color is more. Um, it's a little bit more deep rooted and more of a critical issue. Right. You know, based biases and a lot of systemic issues so you know realizing that i was i'm i'm a part of the patient community um i was you know part of the professional community i was able to marry both of those and really create a phenomenon which is the confess project which i think ultimately um individuals who come from the professional and um clinician space um you know obviously i think that's where we really can join in together i think that's yeah. what uniquely um, the work that I do is able to be such an such an impact because I do show up, you know, as the neighborhood guy, but also can show up and, and speak more in, in depth to some of the terminology and, and educational factors that really play into individuals increasing self-efficacy, understanding knowledge, and just obviously being able to 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 be an advocate and increase advocacy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're saying holds so much truth to it that being a professional is only one part of, of really doing the work. You have to feel like people have to feel like they can relate to you and they can connect to you. And I feel like, you know, I'm a mental health counselor here in Massachusetts. And I feel like when I meet clients, 
who who we don't connect in that way, I can go through the rigmarole of, of what I've learned in, in college and my experience, but really most of the that initial work you do with someone is that connection. And I think, you know, being able to be uh, someone who's viewed as a neighbor, but also have uh, this professional side of you really is a, a gateway to, to making lasting change. Yes, for certain. And, and obviously, I believe, Steve, the, the, you know, I always tell people, um, I don't know where my future may take me. Um, I like to, I always will say I will never become a, a clinician or work in academia, but, you know, and I've, and I've obviously served as an adjunct professor um, and working with um, individuals who were coming out of um, coming out of prison and reentry and, and gaining higher education. So I've been exposed into that space, but it, I think ultimately it's uh, played a messy middle of being a part of, uh, you know, kind of both structures, but I think ultimately I don't, long term, I don't know where I, where I may navigate to, but I really, I think, you know, I, I think I serve a real purpose to, to be in this space. And I think ultimately that's what, what we're doing as well is even with barbers, right? Is right. We're, we're taking men that we know are ordinary men in the community that have a level of leadership and like, hey, look, you don't have to be an expert to understand these few things, but if you know these few things, you can literally change the life of someone, you know, change their life and spark something in them in seconds, right, that can truly lead them to a journey of wellness and acceptance um, and just be able to release the barriers that they may be facing. So um, I think that's that's the um, the value of what we do overall. Right. So why don't we jump into to what the Confess Project is? You, you mentioned a part of it with, with the barber setting. Can you get a little bit more in depth? I know you have like a four-tier model. I'd love to hear more about that as well. Yeah, so we, you know, we, obviously we're rooted in a four-tier model, you know, advocacy, access, you know, innovation, um, research. Um, you know, we obviously like to utilize, um, you know, research in regards to frameworks that are very important, um, such as the ACES framework. Um, that's very um, pivotal. Um, our barber curriculum is rooted in the, um, in like a reality therapy um, yeah. format model that we work with a therapist to help create this based around active listening, validation, you know, how to be not non-judgmental and how this creates stigma, you know, how to also engage in stigma reduction and how this ultimately, um, you know, um, diffuse the stigma. So I think we um, ordinarily, like those are some of the frameworks. I think the trauma piece um, is really big in the work that we do, um, just realizing that, you know, we talk about ACEs and a lot of the issues around ACEs when we talk about parents that have been incarcerated, substance and drug abuse, individuals that may have gotten, you know, um, abused, even even all the way down to even getting whoopings as a kid. And right. we know in our communities, in the black communities, those are some of the very um, frequent behaviors and characteristics. So you look at our ACEs score, um, if it's very high, we're more susceptible to disease, yeah. we're more susceptible to a decreased life expectancy. Um, and I think that's where the Confess Project is really using that framework and that methodology. Um, on a on a macro level, we're training, um, organizing, capacity building, um, training barbers to be advocates. We provide training and cultural strategies and support to mental health professionals, teachers, mentors, community organizations that need to infuse this work into impacting the lives of young men of color that they see day to day um, by providing um, somewhat of the similar same skill sets of how to engage, how to understand the unique perspectives and experiences of young black men, which is very unique and different. Yeah. Um, and also even providing the same support to individuals who work um, in the pharmaceutical industry that are doing clinical trials and um, being able to, you know, obviously enhance the information and um um, just education with them regarding, you know, how did the, the Tuskegee experiment and some of those issues were much more of a barrier to why, you know, black people and black men don't go see physicians and why they right. don't you know, show up in, in spaces where we think that, you know, where they should to get care and treatment. But so training individuals on those unique experiences and perspectives to folks that may not understand it um, clearly or may not come from that community. So I think that's where, we provide that support ultimately to barbers, but also to professionals, nice. individuals that interface the the the, um, the population of young men and their families. 
That's amazing, man. And, and there's so much to unpack just in that short couple minutes of, of you talking about the project. Um, I do want to I do want to start with the aces uh, because I, I do think for for a while uh, aces weren't really talked about and that's adverse exactly. childhood experiences. And they're, it's kind of the ACE scale is coming out more and more in the United States. I know that Nadine Burke Harris, uh, Dr. Harris, who's the Surgeon General in California, she has a whole book on ACEs, and that's been a big push for her in working with California, really getting ACEs into um, hospital settings. But I love that that you're bringing it into a community setting and a cultural setting, and it's so important. And if we look back in history, a couple hundred years ago, children, you know, the well-being of children weren't, wasn't even a factor. It really became just, you know, over the last couple hundred years, it, people started realizing how much childhood affects the future and, and temperament and mental health. And so I think having something, your project being based around some of that knowledge is 100% the way to go because because it's so... It's so stigmatized in general, but it's also normalized, and it's it's hard to really. Sometimes, if you look at that normal this normalization of trauma, you kind of convince yourself like, oh, it doesn't matter. Everyone goes through this, but it's very significant to pay attention to. Yeah, and I actually met um, Dr. Harris, Nadine um, uh, Burke. I met her in a, a they do a big conference by by yearly in San Francisco. I was there able, I was presenting on trauma and I worked uh, with the Confess Project and actually got a signed book by her, very enlightened um, warrior and lady in the field and just very honored to, to meet her in person. Um, very much as a, um, I think it's just a, um, a, a big fighter in the work that we're obviously trying to, you know, to relay around ACEs and mental health. So yeah, I think that when I looked at the ACEs, when I took my ACEs exam, I realized my score was about an eight seven to eight and it's pretty high and I think that I was always unaware and let's be mindful as a young man growing up in gang culture criminal right. justice system um you know urban public schools um I was unaware that I even had a lot of the, the mental health circumstances I just thought a lot of a lot of this again was normalized because right. of yeah. I the masculinity of men and just you know, just the way that, you know, my friends were, you know, um, necessarily um violent and, and fighting was cool and you know being tough was you know something we had to had to do in order to, to be a part of the norm um and i realized I'm like wow like i'm truly like you know suffering from some of these problems um so definitely again it was the the level of the misunderstanding the lack of information again from my family those that were around me um didn't know how to you know even address it because again when you have um you know uh family and, and friends of those that that appear to be the same way it's just oh he's just he's just being a man he's just doing you know he's just going through this phase and it's like no this phase is truly uh, a diagnosis right or it's just right. part of issue largely that has been impacting my life my quality of life or you know why i made poor grades why i had poor relationships uh why i made you know poor decisions i mean you know yeah. so all of these was again was a part of my major depression when when I was diagnosed. So, you know, I just think that you know the trauma and a lot of the issues that I combated. You know, I lost both my parents at a very very early age, um, and the you know the grief and the, the untreated depression truly led to just a poor quality of life. And I think now that's where um, me being passionate about that is wanting others to say, hey, look, I went through this. Um, if I had known this then, I would have probably did this a lot differently. Right. Um, and it's something that, that you guys can consider. And that's what we're ultimately doing in our work is, is truly just, you know, um, making people more aware and, and educating folks on what's important. Yeah. I, I, again, man, like 100 uh, percent in line with with my approach to everything. I think it's it's there's so much there that, you know, we we're conditioned to see the behaviors, but not see what's driving those behaviors right behaviors in of of themselves don't really give us the whole story there are a part of the story and we have to look at some of that stuff but we have to dig a little bit deeper and see what those behaviors are or the reason for them why are, why is that coming up you know why what does it do for the individual and a lot of times like you're saying it 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 it's a way to acclimate to the society or the culture that you're living in 
or even it's a way to protect yourself to hide behind that and not really come forward we're like well actually i was acting this way because i wasn't really angry i was i was anxious and i was trying to cover up that anxiety by pushing people away with my anger yes yes no 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 you're right and i yeah i, I think that's um i think that's that's really pivotal um to thank you for sharing that that sentiment around that i, I think again of the biggest pieces what i've understood is um just being honest and being pure, um, uh, I think the the biggest caveat is what I find is even now in our the population that we're working with, uh, people go, like, oh, you, you know, you're doing a great work, you're helping men. I'm like, no, nah, this is very, very trying and difficult work because we're literally dealing with folks that have been told and have been mistreated and been so underrepresented, you know, across the U.S., um, the barriers that they, they face. And we're literally trying to, get them to, un, you know, unpeel a lot of that, right? And on top of that, talk about, you know, how is it important, you know, to go to therapy or how is it important to, to, to increase self-care techniques. And let's be frank, the way the economy is shaped, um, the unemployment, um, disenfranchised with, you know, young men and with, with black men in particular, um, you know, they're less likely to go to treatment because, again, they're, more focused on, you know, making money and think about the poverty, the alleviation around that. So we're we're faced with, okay, we're wanting to get this message out about what we're doing, but ultimately we're we're having to uh, you know, really work around the industrial complex of poverty, you know, education and and you know, the, the economy. So it's you know, what is the man more likely to do that's, you know, behind a barber chair, um, he's gonna, you know, provide for his family. Um, therapy's gonna come second. Uh, right. So this may be the best that he gets <laughs> what we're providing, you know, or what the community of other barbers and men he's around will even provide to his self-care support. Um, so it's like a, um, it's like the most interesting thing is it, it appears that obviously, yes, it's very, very good work. But it's so much more we have to do um, across the social justice landscape to really um, truly make, you know, make this stuff really be a success for men and their families and just for the communities we serve. So yeah. um, I say all that because I just think that's important to put out there is to think about, you know, the other factors that I've listed. And, um, you know, we're like trying to, you know, uh, dibble around that to, to even make our message more clear and plain too, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that idea of peeling those, those pieces or those parts back is, again very vivid because it is kind of like an onion it's not just this one thing that's kind of affecting the outcomes of these things or or people feeling that their only choice is to to commit crimes to get money or to join gangs for protection uh, you know I, I think there's more to it like 100 percent what you said with with poverty and then this idea of masculinity going hand in hand, there's a lot of information out there that says, hey, men have this ideal that they have to 100% provide for their family. And that's number one goal to make you a man, how you handle that, how, how you move through life. And then you have men in a low income inner city or just in a, in a position where they don't have a lot of open doors for them to find a profession or to, to make that money. And then there's really only a couple options. And so that idea of masculinity kind of drives this perpetuated, like you were saying, Oh, we're men. We have to be violent. We have to do these things. We have to, to do whatever to take care of the family. And in and of itself, that thought isn't inherently a negative thought, but it can create mm. this negative cycle moving forward. Yes, it can. And yeah, and I and I again, I and I really um just very honored that that you see the value, the value in the in where and not to say that um that others don't, but I think it's very important. We have the conversation about mental and behavioral health, and I have to really talk about um the uh, what I like to call is the the complex around the mental and behavioral health system again of poverty you know, economics, um, the, the lack of access to, to capital and to, to home loans, ownership, you know, right. financial barriers. <laughs> uh, these are the things every day that, um, you know, that 
like again that you know a lot of black men are really facing you think about the the decrease in um you know even with college degrees and even when they get jobs and how they're less likely to receive higher employment from their white counterparts right it's like those are the issues um so now we're talking about a lot of equity and you know um we're getting deep into like these equitable conversations around you know how do we truly improve those things and how public policy can truly be improved because that is now compacting our mental behavioral system of how men are not going to enter that system on top of the barriers and access of the lack of clinicians that are 4% across the U.S., 2% of those um, are black men, right? So it's people that they cannot identify like them or that don't look like them. So, <laughs> you know, so it, it is um, hands over fists and compacted issues of this onion, right? So it's, I mean, it's definitely trying work, but it's rewarding work, right? And, yeah. um, and again, because I've I've been a part of you know these same struggles and have, you know, and and, and have worked in corporate America myself, and, and can remember some of the issues and, and some of the, the the lack of not moving forward and what that was, um, and how that made me feel. Like again, I'm thinking about some of the men that we come across in the community. Um, we get it, right? So it's 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 a mental and behavioral health conversation, but it's also about. Um, this is my life and the barriers to life are just hard to navigate. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just thought that was important to mention as well. Well, and then I think, you know, you have all these systemic things that you're talking about and social justice and equity and access to treatment, right? Like we all know that treatment should be a number one thing that should be provided for people because it's health, it's mental health and wellness. It's all, it's all the same thing. However, there are those barriers due to insurance or lack of insurance. And then if you don't have that insurance, you have to pay out of pocket. And then if you can't pay out of pocket and you can get insurance, it's not the best insurance. And then you still have to jump through hoops to get to an office, to fill out different paperwork, to follow up on that, to have an address, to, to have this contact and it's not really set up to be what I think if you look back at, you know, the professions of counselors or doctors is like, do no harm and provide health for people, help people to get in a healthy lifestyle. It becomes this big business and, you know, and then we can talk about big pharma and all, <laughs> all that stuff too, but it, it's really just the systemic and then, if you look at epigenetics and the cultural com component of trauma and how it's passed down through different generations and, you know, people, adolescents today are not only dealing with their own traumatic childhood, but maybe those of their parents and their grandfathers and their great grandfathers, then it becomes this, yeah. this cycle is just like, man, we have to change right. a lot of stuff to make, make this everlasting change. And we start small, but it really needs to be, this this movement of like curing the stigma of mental health. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. And I think yeah, on, on a definitely um on a small root level, I think you're right. That is that's truly it. Because I, I just think about myself. If I had have had more, um, uh, you know, um, just more individuals who were open to therapy, open to emotional wellness, and also just had, a, if it was a space around me that was built for just more uh, vulnerability and just being open, um, I think I would have not have probably engaged in so many of the issues and different things that I did get myself into that later led to larger problems. Um, but again, I think, you know, culturally, like my family, they were, again, like unaware um, misinformed and I think the other part of it is they didn't know any better themselves because based on generationally right. yeah. like you know that's that's <laughs> that was that was the the same thing for them so um do I become an adult and blame them like no but I can definitely change how that moves forward for the people that I know that's now my friends are raising you know their children and we're now adults and it's like hey this is something we got to do different right um because yeah. you know again that, that's providing that space and um, that resiliency component is really important. Um, and, just, and those natural supports are truly important for those to thrive and have a quality of life. No, yeah, man. And, and that's really why I outreached to you because I saw what you were doing with the Confess Project and, and what you were saying and, and really saw you as a, a catalyst of change 
like this moving force of yeah i could i could sit here and bemoan everything i've gone through or i can take the reins and kind of help other people manage and, and move through and and give them this new avenue to to kind of walk down and i think that's what's so powerful about your story about going from you know being a youth incarcerated and then working with youth in in the system can i ask you how did that shift affect you like what was one of the most i'm going to say what was one of the biggest um moments of that shift for you that you noticed like yeah. i think the biggest thing wow i'll tell you um i never forget um so i was 17 when i and i wasn't i wasn't incarcerated for a long time at all right. i was attached to the juvenile system um probation i had to go through some some other legal actions um but you know from that transition period uh, i barely graduated high school obviously and i think about that moment you know going through juvenile delinquency and so I was able to go to college and went to college and a few things happened. Mom passed, you know, college didn't seem to work out. I stopped for a second. And I ended up going back later, but that's when I stumbled across this job. And I literally went into the system because I, it was at the time it just, it was a good job. It was making good money. It didn't really dawn on me at the moment that this was wild. Like this is a juvenile that I was just at, right? Uh, it did it just didn't hit me in that way because again, I think I was from this, you know, um, good money, I can, you know, take care of myself, et cetera. I'm roughly about 21 years old. Um, and at that moment when I got into working into the system, I really think that I hadn't, and this is the value of folks that work into the field, I hadn't really unpacked the trauma mm. that I had previously. So I went into the space with this kind of boulder on my shoulder, like really wanted to, be the tough guy with the young people because I knew also that they were treacherous and dangerous too, right? right. Um, so, you know, or had characteristics of being, you know, dangerous. So I went in with a different attitude. And while I was there, I met some young people there that really helped take me back to where I was. And from there, that's when it really started. And I just think I had a particular conversation with a, just a few gentlemen maybe one in particular about his childhood story was so similar to mine. He actually went into foster care. Uh, he didn't have anyone. I'll be mindful that my mother and father, I stayed with my aunt and uncle. So from the time I was, when the time my mother had me in a prison, from that time moving forward, I was taken in by other family members. But for him, he actually had to go into the system. And his life was so, so much more different and treacherous. He had to go through a lot of different issues. So um, I just think about it like, wow, I was right there before I happened to go into, you know, uh, you know the, the um, child protective system, right? right. So if I had had family to really step in. And that's when it really started to click on me that um, I was just like them exactly. And I just, I, I think um, that's when it really made a difference. Like, wow, I can really, like, I shouldn't be here right now, but I am. And because I am, I, I can do more. Right. Um, so it was just kind of that aha moment uh, of just having a conversation with, with that youth in particular that um, at, that, at that time I think he was facing uh, like adult charges so he was being held before he actually had to and I just I just it, I can feel everything in him like man if I just had the support if I had this I would have done better and I'm like wow I had the support right. like I had somebody that cared after you know my life could have been so much more different because you know my mom made these decisions when she got in car. So, you know, like, so yeah. it was just that quick moment of, um, I knew I could make a bigger difference because I had that, that split chance right there. That's amazing. It's, it's almost like the story of the confessed project hung on that moment, that, that conversation with you and this, this adolescent where he chose maybe not a hundred percent vulnerability, but he chose to open up and, and have that conversation with you. And it affected you in a way, that that you caught, kind of saw the path and you're like oh, okay i can let go of this ego of having to be the tough guy because these guys are tough this defense mechanism of let me go in tough so they don't take advantage of me and yeah can, exactly and i can shift it and you know that's amazing that that conversation was was able to to happen because i could see it you know right on that precipice it could have gone either way there you could yeah. you could he could have been like closed off and told you to fuck off 
And then yeah. <laughs> you could have been like, okay, I got to stay with this mask of being the tough guy and, and none of this. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you think, I mean, you know, you're hired as a as a security slash, you know, social services worker, whatever they call it, working at a, and I forget at the time, but we was more of like, you know, the lead for the pod. And you may have had 12 to 14 youth. Um, these youth, you know, like I said, they come from all type of backgrounds. They've got all type of issues going on and you know you you know you're you're told to hold down your area and if for whatever reason if it's not held down again it's this it's this issue of oh he can't handle his area he can't handle the young people as an adult they're going to make him look smaller than what he is so you have to go in with this other mindset but then you're not even thinking like these young people have been traumatized they are they've went through probably just as much as you have um, and you need to be considering any empathetic to that. Um, so I had to, like, when I was able to unwind from that, I was really able to be like, man, I'm really, you know, I need to be here for these. And then that's when I actually left juvenile working. And that's, I did that for about a year. And the next nine years I spent working in mental health facilities. And I worked in a lot of crisis facilities, yeah. um, independent living facilities. I did case management. That's when I really started working with the grand doors of the population with severe mental illnesses from probably age five to 65. I did that for the next nine years, and that's what got me through college. So that's really, you know, it was, that's pretty much the, the background and how it all, you know, how it all got here. Um, and then, you know, so, yeah, definitely um, this was not planned years ago, right? It was just, right. it was a sudden idea of doing the outreach work um, and just realizing my personal background um, and it just never dawned on me. Working in the field again, I think when you work in the space and facilities, it's like, hey, you know, you know, you're here for the patients. Make sure they're safe. Make sure they're fine. Um, and you don't look at yourself. And so many of those years, I can remember really talking to myself, but I was talking to other clients, right? And you know, and being there for them, making them, empowering them to be stronger, to attend groups, to take medication, to be a better person. And when they get out into society, once they leave the facility. Um, not realizing, like, wow, I was giving a talk to my younger self <laughs> or yeah. my, or my, you know, or my current self. At <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, so yeah, it's just, yeah, it's definitely a unique experience. And I do, and I do think that's that, you know, as a clinician myself, we get told all the time in our training not to give too much, not to be too personal in our sessions. And I think there's a time and a place for to have that guard up. But I think if you're really looking to make a change or help someone make a change or connect with someone, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be real. And this is super important for, for male clients, um, in general, but then especially male clients of color, they have to like that connection needs to be there. You have to be that support and you can't genuinely do that if you're not vulnerable with them because they can sense when it's kind of, this mirage or, or it's just like, Oh, let me tell you what you need to do. Um, and that's, that's something I think you have to let go of ego at times, which is probably one of the hardest things to do, um, as a person is to let go of your own ego and just be there for that connection and, and that grace of connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, it's funny you bring that up. I'm going to speak to about, um, hundreds of mentors in DC at a, mentoring conference and I'm talking about trauma and the other side of understanding young men of color and their trauma and how mentors can be of light and assistance to that population. Um, realizing as mentors, they enter the space from a life, maybe a life skills, a life outcome, success, and they may miss those conversations around trauma and mental health. Um, and I think what you just said is really important. Some of those same skills of teaching them the vulnerability, the um, understanding the experiences, removing ego, um, is going to be very, very important in the work that they do in that space. But ultimately, this even encounters into what happens in our schools, our community organizations, um, associations that serve these populations that may not have a particular focus. It's like, hey, these are the very important things that you should keep in mind, whether you're, you don't have to be an expert to understand this, but this is some key um, components that may help your program and or successes of young people go or people just go much more further. Um, so I just thought that was a, a good caveat is 
um, that's the broader work of the Compass Project is that training and capacity building component is um, we don't want to we don't want to um, we don't want to make individuals um, feel that they're going to leave with some type of licensure, but we do want to make sure that you're equipped to have these conversations and to be able to be an impact um, to the audience because we do know that the data shows that majority of the men of our population that you're serving have probably come in contact and or their family has been impacted by trauma. Yeah. Um, or something, you know, so it's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, I think that's, that, that reads pretty clear. So that's why we're really on a mission um, to going across the country and doing this work as well. Yeah, man. Like I, I know I've said it like eighty times, but that's just awesome. Um, and I think <laughs> no, it's, I think it's needed because you know, as, as people who work in the mental health field, we sometimes we buy into this idea of oh, I'm empathetic, I'm an empath, I can connect with people, I can feel their emotions. But what's lacking is really understanding their life. What's lacking is understanding their cultural background or how they perceive things. And, you know, you mentioned Dr. Christopher Willard, who was uh, the podcast guest before you in episode 19. And when I heard him speak at Harvard Medical School about meditation and mindfulness, first of all, he was great, which is why I had him on the, the podcast. But there was another speaker there who I'm trying to get on the podcast and she's a, she's a younger um, woman of color and she had one of the most profound things to say in her presentation about mindfulness and, and meditation is that too much of this is from the perspective, the trainings on meditation and mindfulness, too much of this is from the perspective of white men or white females. And we need to take in cultural understandings of, how we practice meditation or mindfulness may not be the same for people of color or people from different living situations because, because of that trauma, because of that epigenetic, you know, generational trauma, they're not geared to respond the same way as people who haven't had to, to fight for the rights or people who haven't had to, to worry about, you know, what's going to happen when I walk down the street. So to have someone sit down and say, Hey, just meditate and clear your mind and relax. It's not always the best insight for that individual person. So you really like you're like we're talking about. You need to let go of the ego of understanding. Well, I'm an empath. I have this training. This is what you do, and really connect with that person to see what what's most important. Wow, that's really powerful. No, you just that just really brought some some great things to mind about. Um, while it goes back to that understanding the experiences and their perspectives. And I, I think that's really powerful. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think that's really, really, really powerful to understand for individuals that are in leadership and or impacting the population that, um, that it, you know, will be unique differences. Um, so I just think that's important. And I really honor you for, for understanding that as well for someone who's, you know, um, you know, uh, not directly related, but also right. that truly cares for the work that you do. Um, broadly and serving multiple populations with understanding that I think that puts you so much further ahead. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying that. I feel like I could talk to you for, for multiple hours. Um, yeah. But I know that, that we both have uh, to get on with our day. So I want to talk about one thing before I get to my closing questions, which I ask every podcast guest. And the first thing I want to talk about is, can you tell me a little bit more about the cultural strength of the barbershop because it's a big component of what what you guys do and i'd love to know more about that history or or the richness of that culture yeah so barbershops are normally um historically have been viewed as a social change you know incubator space for men for the black community um to to meet and to get things done in regards to um, I mean, if you think about even back in um, the civil rights era, NAACP, I mean, a lot of um, um, convening and organizing was done out of barbershops, uh, meeting there as a, as a, as a, as a, a checkpoint to, 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 to meet the broader community. Um, so it's a lot of historical um, track that is tied to the barbershop in regards to organizing um, 
as well as, again, the cultural component of men are taking their weekly. Um, they are shown um, dynamics of relationships, dynamics of connecting with others, um, brotherhood, uh, manhood. Um, what is it being? What is what is it like to be a man? Um, their first mentors for those who have may not have had a father in their home. Um, so it's a lot of the uh, boyhood to manhood transition. All of that takes place at the barber shop. Some men go to the same barber probably from the time they were five to their forty-five now. Um, so they probably build more trust with that person for. Um, longer than they would sometimes their own family members, right? right yeah. um, that they may have been distant from. So it's a lot of cultural, but also um, just um, long-term um, growth that takes place at barbershops. Um, and I think this, you know, ultimately it's just a um, um, the exchange, you know, for a haircut, um, the exchange for someone getting this close proximity with you with a razor the exchange and intimacy that takes place with a barber and a client is probably the most, one of the most near and dear relationships that can take place more than someone will with their mother and father. Um, So it's a lot of true ties that's tied into their relationship. And I, again, I know that just from being a man that's went for so long as a young person that grew up in a beauty salon that my aunt owned for over a couple of decades, my first mentor there was the only barber in her shop, and I just remember the relationship that we built there every day after school and how that played a big part in me being who I was even now and as a teenager. Um, and, and just, no, so it was just, you know, it's, it's so much there. Um, that one impact of my life is now the reason that I comfortably can go in any barbershop across the country and um, feel, you know, even without this is, you know, even as timid as the topic can be, it feels right at home, right? Right. Yeah. So it's you know um, it goes. Yes, yeah. so I think that that's that's the culture and the, the long term connection with men. I believe in community, um, particularly in African American community with barbershops. That's great, man. I, it's you know I guess I never really thought about it before, but that that level of trust to have someone put a razor to your neck or you know to clean <laughs> you clean you up it, it's huge, and then it's one place you, you know, every barbershop I've gone to, it's, it's, it's a place of vulnerability. Like no topic is off discussion. You just kind of check in and it, um, you know, and you don't even have to look at each other. You know, you got, you got them working on your hair or you look in the mirror and it's, it's just set up for a really good community um, place to connect. So that's awesome. All right. So last two questions, why I got you on, I'm a huge nerd. And so my, my questions are always about, uh, superpowers, uh, cause I'm a huge comic book nerd. Um, so the okay. first, first question, they go in tandem, so you can order, you can answer in any order you want. But the first question is if you had any superpower, what would you want it to be and why? And then the second question is, what do you believe is your superpower? If I had a superpower and what would I want it to be, it would be, um, I think it would be to fly. <laughs> um, honestly, I think it would be to, to literally fly, you know, to have access to move around at a speed that is abnormally not normal for a human. <laughs> um, and, and be able to just fly across the world, obviously being able to use that as a way of, of, of help guiding others and, and being adventurous into how that would play into um, just um, you know, helping our humanity connect. Um, I think my superpower individually, um, in regards to <laughs> not being able to fly, it would be, um, you know, my superpowers would be, I think, is instinct and uh, intuition. Yeah. And I think I have a really good instinct and intuition of how. I can understand folks when I meet people, I can really gauge the energy really well um, of who and how I move forward. <clears throat> I think that, I mean, I think about one who has went through the level of traumatic experiences that I've occurred over a decade or a lifetime um, to be able to now be in spaces where I literally are sometimes 
is not the person that they may not want to hear from, or I may be the guy that they've been waiting to hear from their whole life, and or just kind of approaching a stranger. Uh, I think my intuition has been really great in just knowing how to be able to move forward and being able to just use that synergy as a way to um, to make impact in other lives. I mean, even on a micro level, just with people I meet, um, I think that I immediately empower individuals just by not even my own story, but just by the caveats of experiences. I'm still 31 years old. I've mm-hmm. went through probably more experiences than a 45-year-old man. Right. Um, and I just think about that is um, a superpower within me that I can immediately just kind of catch people at a space where they're like, man, I don't know where to go. And I'm able to really help them navigate, um, you know, kind of probably more like a life coach, right? I'm not a life coach, but, you know, so that's a, a, a trait of mine, I think, that I'm really gifted with is helping somebody see that through another part of what they may not have noticed, but just being able to, like, you know, help that person move forward just by giving some guidance. So, um, and I think naturally that's probably a, uh, a trait to be a counselor, be a, you know, somebody much more, but I, I, I use that as a, I, I think my own power just with regular people every day that I see it's been passing or, or the work that I do on the ground. Yeah, man, I'd, I'd second that a hundred percent. Again, there's the hundred percent, uh, because you know, in the short 49 minutes that we've been talking, I can definitely feel that connection and you've definitely impacted me in a way that before this conversation, it's shifting some of my own dynamics and my own kind of passion to, to do the work. So I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're doing and I'm honored that you decided to come on the podcast today. Oh yeah. For sure, man. I really thank you. I always love to, um, just spread the message, meet, meet new people and obviously just connect the, the broader things to, to, to the things that we ultimately know people need moving, you know, moving forward. So I'm thanks for having me, man. I, it's an honor. Thanks for reaching out. And I look forward to um, anything I can do in the future. Uh, definitely want to um, be an assistant to, to what you're doing uh, long term. Fantastic, man. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project dot org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at thepermetheanproject.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.